What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode of the King's Pulse Podcast. My name is Brendan Nunes. Got Rich Ivanowski on here as we always do. How you doing, Rich? I'm doing well today. I'm doing well. And we're going to be talking about a team that I'm very excited to break down because there's just a lot going on uh, this offseason in Philadelphia. So we brought on Jackson Frank. Uh, he is, you can find his writing all over the place. Uh, he is, he's been working with the Athletic Philadelphia, and he's a contributor over at Liberty Ballers and the Step Back. How are you doing today, Jackson? I'm doing well. How are you guys today? Appreciate you having me on. We're doing good, man. Yeah, appreciate you taking the time. And uh, we want to talk Sixers, obviously, but you posted that De'Aaron Fox is your favorite player in the NBA, and that already made you a favorite to all the <laughs> listeners here. How did that come about? Uh, well, I should, there should be, I said favorite player to watch. I would say my favorite player uh, is... I don't know. I have to think about that, but uh, yeah, I, don't, I just I just found myself watching a lot of their games last year. I mean, one, I mean, they had that kind of like pretty good start, and once I realized they were probably at worst a pretty decent team, I watched a lot of the games, and it felt like every every time I watched, he just did something that like maybe one of the player in the NBA could do, and I was I was finding, I was downloading, I was putting it on Twitter or something. So um, just a just a fantastic player to watch and then I wrote a piece on Marvin Bagley earlier this summer as well and obviously uh that meant I got to watch some more Fox and um just I mean just the stuff he does is breathtaking I think his improvement was remarkable I think it was cool and his his personality is uh is energetic and it's infectious and so um just a really fun player to watch and does things that only a handful of players probably ever could do right now um and so I just I just think that's kind of the kind of the mark of a a must-watch guy if he does things that you couldn't you couldn't find anywhere else in the league, and that's that's kind of who De'Aaron is. Yeah, definitely. We're very excited about him, obviously, um, and it does feel like the Kings have made that jump at least into uh, a league pass favorite. But um, maybe before we dive into Philly here, you know, what are your thoughts on on the Kings in terms of wins and losses this season? Yeah, I and mean, I think I think the big key is kind of. I wrote about it in that, that piece I on Darren that I published last week is kind of what I mean. I think Marvin Bagley, and Harry Giles, their their development is key. And you think I expect them to get better, um, but I think the key kind of like what type of shooter is De'Aaron Fox long term because that's really going to kind of open up or close off some avenues to him becoming a really good scorer. Um, so so I I would peg them for probably in that thirty eight to forty five win range, and that's kind of big, but. Um, I think the, they might be due for a little bit of regression, um, but at the same time, they're going to get better from those young guys. I expect De'Aaron to take a step forward, whether it's 
at an individual score, whether it's another step forward as a playmaker, uh, defensively off the ball. Um, and then I just thought, I thought they signed some quality of players. Dwayne Dedman's really going to help them open things up. Uh, obviously, Willie Cauley-Stein had his strengths, but Dedman's a very good shooter for a five, and that's kind of what they they need. They need someone who's going to open up the floor for Fox to attack the rim, badly to, to uh, kind of face up and attack from those elbows um, and just take attention off of, of Buddy Heald and uh, Bialitza and Fox in general. So. Um, I think obviously Corey Joseph was a great, a great pickup as well. Um, he's really going to kind of reinforce that second unit as a great point of attack defender. So, um, I wouldn't have them in the playoffs right now, but I could certainly see them making it. I wouldn't be surprised if I were wrong. I think, uh, they should at least be in the hunt for the playoffs most of the year. And, uh, that in itself is a pretty fun way to enjoy a season. Yeah, we're pretty on board with most of what you're saying there. Uh, we've been a little vocal about, uh, even though this is a Kings pod, same as you, sort of having them in sort of that ninth seed area this season still. Um, you'll see individual improvement, but record-wise, it's going to take a lot. And it seems like the, one of the teams you're chasing is really San Antonio, and it's hard to bet against Popovich making the playoffs. And uh, like you mentioned, some of the guys that brought on board, I'm excited for their defense. But it's not going to be anything like this Philly defense. Uh, what can you tell us about what you saw from Philadelphia last year that you feel will transfer over into this season? Yeah, I mean, I think defensively last year they were pretty underwhelming. Um, a lot of that, I think, was the fact that Lloyd Pierce was their, their defensive coach, uh, and obviously he wanted to do Atlanta, and uh, Billy Lang took over, and they, they switched a fair amount two years ago in Simmons' rookie year, but last year they were – really really switch heavy team and for a long stretch of the year they just had a lot of guys who couldn't really guard more than like a position and a half they had guys like Landry Shamit, TJ McConnell, Mike Muscala, Amir Johnson, um, Wilson Chandler guys who you kind of wanted them to just guard the respective positions and they weren't doing that a lot they were getting targeted um, and then obviously Jimmy Butler came over and his defensive intensity wasn't anywhere where it had been in years prior uh, at least in the regular season Postseason stepped it up as kind of everyone knew to follow that team throughout the postseason. He was huge for them. Um, and the same thing goes for Simmons. I think Simmons kind of took a step back in the regular season defensively from his rookie year. But in the postseason, he was awesome. He totally neutralized D'Angelo Russell. Uh, he gave Kawhi Leonard issues, even though Kawhi was hitting basically every shot that he took in that, that Toronto series. So I think the greatness or the, the goodness of the standout ability of guys like Embiid and Simmons are going to transfer. You know they're going to be a very good – season defensive team that has even a higher ceiling in the, in the playoffs, obviously. Um, and then you expect a guy like Josh Richardson, who kind of teetered on that all-defensive line a couple of years ago, regressed a little bit last year when his uh, offensive responsibilities increased. Um, but in a smaller role offense, you expect him to kind of be that menacing perimeter defender like he was in the 17-18 season. Um, and then you have Al Horford, who is one of the best defensive centers in the league, and he's versatile, and he's smart, and he knows how to play the angles. So um, you have a lot of really good pieces, and uh, I think the biggest key is for them to just kind of get on the same page. That was an issue last year. Just they had a lot of roster turnover throughout the year, both in the offseason and throughout the year with uh, trading for Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler. Um, and so ideally this year they don't make any huge moves and they're able to kind of by mid-November or December, the turn of the new year, really get clicking and uh, really maximize that defensive talent in the, the starting five. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there is a lot to unpack here in the offseason, but you mentioned it. The trades last season, uh, you know, I wouldn't say defined the the year because I guess that comes down to the postseason, but uh, two huge trades happened um, throughout the year. And then, and that's not even to speak of the, 
the trade of a former number one overall pick that yeah. I guess we would just categorize as a minor trade at that point. <laughs> but um, yeah, let's look at those trades real quick. Uh, the Jimmy Butler trade, uh, Philadelphia sent out Robert Covington and uh, Dario Saric got back Jimmy Butler and uh, everyone's excited about Justin Patton. Uh, but yeah, you know, they also uh, sent out a 2022 second just for uh, as completionists. We'll throw that in there. But what did you think about the value of that trade and, and how do you think that, uh, that that worked out. Uh, yeah, I I personally have long been a fan um, of Jimmy Butler, and so getting to watch him uh, for sixty five games, or whatever it was, was really fun to watch. Um, she didn't having him be on a team that I covered was awesome. I think the value was fine. I think uh, Sarge is a guy who's kind of who's going to be a very tricky uh, second contract guy. Obviously, that's kind of that's maybe partially why Minnesota shipped him out this summer, and uh, now it's an issue or a, a I wouldn't say an issue. It's, it's something that Phoenix has to address, address next summer or sometime this year. Um, so I didn't mind trading him. I think um, obviously you saw some shooting, shooting regression from him. He kind of went from a very good three-point shooter on spot up to just about league average last year. I want to say it's about 36.5%. Um, and then trading Covington was tough. He was a guy who had really built himself up in Philly. He was kind of one of those uh, representations of the process, kind of just finding guys uh, – out of the blue, um, and he's an all, he's one of the best wing defenders in the league. He's uh, he's an all defensive member. You think he finished fourth uh, in defensive player of the year voting a few years back. Um, and just guys, a lot of Sixers fans uh, loved and revered. But getting a guy back like Jimmy Butler was was worth it. They needed someone who could create from the perimeter in the half court. Um, obviously, Sims without a jump shot or a really refined handle in, in traffic restricted him from doing that. Um, and you saw the value of that. You saw it. He had a ton of game winners early in the year. Uh, not a ton, I should say. A couple game winners, kind of the step-back threes from the right wing. Um, and then the postseason, when I needed him to step up, uh, he did just that. I mean, he was, he was great uh, in both series for the most part. And so I think that was really good value on that end. Um, obviously, Butler had his heart set on Miami. Seems like maybe from the outset. Um, that was one of the teams he listed as a destination um, when he went to Minnesota last, last uh, summer asking for a trade. Um, and so I think when you look at it, it was Sarich and Covington for Richardson and a year of Jimmy Butler. I think it's fine value in that sense. Um, obviously, it would have been even better value if you had a top 20 player uh, and Butler stay. But Richardson's still kind of a top 60, top 75 player. So to recoup some value there uh, is fine. I didn't mind the trade at all. Um, I think it was worth it. They're trying to win a title. Obviously, they didn't. But um, I think it was clear that Butler made them a much more dangerous playoff team. And even if they didn't make it any further into the playoffs than they did the, the year prior. Yeah, I'm sure you would still love to have Covington on the team, but uh, it, like you said, it was, a t- it was a move that you felt like you definitely should do in the moment and was your closer throughout the year. The other trade that happened during the season and the guy stuck around was Tobias Harris, and then you also got Boban and Mike Scott in exchange for Wilson Chandler, Landry Shamit, Muscala, two first-round picks and two seconds. And like I mentioned, uh, Tobias did re-sign this offseason. What do you think of, first of all, the trade to get him and paying him the full five-year max this offseason? Yeah, I, I don't think that was very good value. Um, I think they, they traded a lot. Um, future picks, a promising young cost-controlled shooter in Landry Shamit. Um, Obviously, I don't think Muscala or Chandler were of much detriment to them. Um, you know, I think they basically just swapped um, kind of fringe rotation players and Mike Scott, Boban for those guys. But um, 
the picks was, were a lot to give up, and then Shamit's a guy who uh, I don't necessarily think he has some gigantic, huge ceiling, but he is a guy whose contract is very team friendly. You have two, you have kind of these two future stars or current stars, excuse me, in Simmons and Embiid who are going to take up a lot of the cap space moving forward. Um, and you need guys like Shamit who cost I don't know three million dollars, two million dollars. I don't know his exact deal, but um, cheap guys who spread the floor for two stars slash superstars who don't spread the floor. So you need that. Um, and then I think there are a lot of things to like about Tobias Harris. I don't think one of them is being a max player. Um, I think he's more a guy you want to pay 25 to 26 million at most. And he's getting 36, I believe. I think his max was five for 190. And they trimmed just a little bit off of that, but it's a deal that uh, gradually increases each year. I think at one year, it's like 30, it's like 42 million or something um, a few years down the line. So, uh, I didn't love that, but at the same time, Tobias seems like a guy who's a great culture and locker room guy. He's gotten better every year. Um, you can tell he's remade his body when he first came in the league from Tennessee. He was kind of a little, little bigger, a little doughy, um, and he's really improved his diet. He's become a very good shooter. Obviously, he didn't show that entirely in, um, in Philly. I think he shot like 32% from three after the trade in the regular season. So, um, But I think there are a lot of things to like, and he's, he's probably worth – if he's worth – 24 25 with on-court value i think given his kind of affable personality and consistent year to year growth it gives you a little bit more so he's kind of a 28 million guy so still an overpay um but at the same time if they win a championship or they make a finals or uh multiple finals appearances in the championship there over the next three or four years and i think that's where the extended day you, you spend money to achieve that goal right and so um even if it's an overpay there's there's still a certain goal at hand um, and so it may be not necessarily the best decision, but you can still have a great outcome from that decision is kind of where I stand on that. So he, he gives them a chance to be really, really good and win a title over the next few years. And um, if you have to overpay, then I get it, but it doesn't necessarily make it a great move overall. And to wrap up on this past season and before we can move on fully to the off season, uh, can you tell us about this postseason run and, and what do you think that, do you think that this was a, you know, was this above what you expected, below what you expected? Obviously, they went out in dramatic fashion, Game 7 of the Eastern Conference semifinals, that bouncing shot from Kawhi. But, uh, you know, were you disappointed or, or were you, do you feel like it was pretty much as expected for Philly in the, off, in the postseason? Excuse me. Um, oh, just one note, by the way. Tobias, the most he'll make is $39 million, uh, in 23-24. So, uh, but anyway, I just want to clarify that if anyone, any sa- any uh, cap salary gurus uh, listen to the pod and speak to me. But anyways, um, it was about what I expected. I I was probably higher on them than a lot of people were throughout the year and going into the postseason. Um, that starting unit of Butler, Redick, Harris, Embiid, and Simmons um, just didn't play that much together. You know, Redick missed a few games and B was in out of the lineup after the All-Star break uh, with some knee issues. Um, Butler kind of had some issues too with his wrist. Um, and maybe I think he had a bad back at one point. Um, but when they were on the floor, they were so good and they beat some really good teams over that, over that span when those five guys or even four of them were healthy. And so, um, I saw all the numbers and I, I just, I just had a feeling they were going to give Toronto trouble. They're going to figure it out. And so, um, I don't know if I ever officially declared it, but uh, I, I just I, I predicted it was going to go seven. I don't remember if I said the Philly was going to win or the, the Raptors were going to win, but um, I just thought went at full strength. They're a really good team. I knew Toronto was really good. They had the numbers. They had the star player. They had the complimentary 
talent. Um, they had Pascal Siakam breaking out. Um, but I just thought the Sixers were going to make a click, and for the most part, they did. Like, I mean, they went to seven games as the underdog against the team who ended up winning the championship, and you can talk all about shooting variants and, and all that, and, uh, you know, like, they just, like a lot of the Raptors couldn't make outside shots. Um, but it was about what I expected. I, I mean, obviously, it would have been fun to cover another round, um, but, all, but all things considered, I think it was probably a little um, – better than teams consider like fans consider i don't think a lot of rational objective sixers fan expected them to take the seven against a team who had been much better than them and had their number throughout the year the only game the sixers won against the raptors last year was the, the game i think it was in december early january that Kawhi missed um so it was about what i expected personally but i think overall they definitely um overachieved a little bit just being able to push the eventual champions to the to the brink like that and kind of had them on the ropes a little bit and up to one and sit staring at a game four at home. Right. And that starting lineup you mentioned did obviously change, move some big pieces. And the first one being Jimmy Butler going to Miami and pulling back Josh Richardson in that is, is massive. Not having to give up a draft pick like we saw, even though it was heavily contested, the Golden State D-Low one, um, heavily protected, excuse me. Um, what do you think the offensive role of Richardson is going to be having less responsibility than he did in Miami and the defensive pairing with Simmons. Do you see either of them preferably guarding the one or two since they both seem capable of doing both? Yeah, I think offensively Richardson should be a guy who shoots a lot of spot ups, um, spot up three. They need like, obviously he's not going to be able to replace what Reddick did, but they need someone who shoots a high volume of threes to command defensive attention. Um, and he's also proven to be pretty good in, um, in handoff situations. I think last year he was, in the 70th or 80th percentile according to synergy and handoff efficiency. Um, so I imagine he'll kind of maybe work a two-man game with Embiid and Horford in that respect, kind of like, or similar to what Reddick did the last couple of years. Uh, runs the pick and rolls at times. Uh, he's not a great pull-up shooter, but um, his pick and roll efficiency was about middle of the road, 50th percentile or so. Um, and so I, but I do expect most of it to kind of come either in spot ups or when he's already on the move in, in the sense that, like, he's not going to be an isolation creator like Butler was um, or some of those other perimeter stars you see in the league can do, like Kawhi and, uh, and Katie and stuff. Obviously, I'm not comparing to those guys, but he's someone who works better on the move using a screen or kind of working in motion off the catch, things like that. Um, defensively, I, I am really intrigued to see how they kind of distribute the backcourt assignments just because, like you said, both guys are very, very good point-of-attack defenders guarding the one or the two. Um, I would imagine that Richardson probably takes the brunt of kind of quicker dynamic guards. Simmons is pretty quick for his size, but I wouldn't call him like a lightning quick lateral mobility guy versus other point guards. Um, and he's also a little, he's just stronger and bigger than um, Richardson. So maybe some backcourts that are bigger wings that need guarding uh, Simmons. Do that. But at the same time, Richardson's pretty, pretty strong for his size too. So I wouldn't imagine, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of mix and match and figure out kind of, each of their defensive preferences, whether whether their skills lie and and some of their their setbacks as an on ball defender. Um, so I, to answer that side, I just think it's going to be a lot of uh, interchanging throughout the year and just kind of figuring out exactly what works best for the playoffs. Um, but my early my early kind of intuition says that Richardson will handle most of the ones, uh, at least the most of the point guards that need uh, significant defensive attention. Are you currently paying off student debt? 
Interested in improving your financial literacy or looking for new ways to earn income in today's ever-changing digital landscape? Well, on the Talk Money with Mesh Lakani podcast, Mesh will follow paper trails, chat with experts, and break down complex ideas to bring clarity to the mystical financial phenomena. Each episode will be filled with compelling stories covering a broad range of subjects, from buying Bitcoin, dealing with student debt, and everything in between. Listen to Talk Money with Mesh Lakani on Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and learn how to spend, invest, and earn for today's economy. Yeah, and getting into the draft here, uh, going through the offseason, there's another player that is going to have some defensive upside, going to have some contributions. I don't know if they'll be immediate necessarily, but uh, pretty soon Matisse Thibault is going to be making an impact uh, defending the wing. I think I've seen you tweet out some video of him making some plays. Uh, they traded twenty four, pick 24 and pick 33 to get to 20 or to get the rights to Thibault, who was drafted at 20. Yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, um, I, I did think um, that that trade itself was an overpay. Um, but at the same time, they got their guy. And so I think um, – why well, didn't necessarily agree with the move to trade big? It's basically a, just a, a late first round pick. I mean, or I guess early second round, but whatever. I, I, I pick that has value. It's not like in the fifties. Um, but I, I think Thibault's a guy, yeah, that really fits in with what they want to do. Assuming the jump shot progresses. Um, he had a really weird last year at, at Washington, at Washington. Um, I think he shot like 30% from three or something like that. And uh, his first three years, he'd been, kind of in the 37, uh, 38% range. Uh, and so he kind of got this weird reputation as like a non-shooter, and that's just not at all what he was. I mean, the, the three years prior, he shot 37%, 41%, 37%. Uh, and then last year, we were at 31%. So super weird uh, just drop-off that final year that probably affected his draft stock a little bit um, and kind of made him to a guy who couldn't shoot. Um, but yeah, I really think he fits well, assuming he can hit spot-up threes. He's a great off-ball defender. Like, like has the potential to be a special off-ball defender with his instincts and his length and his quickness and his reaction time. Like all that stuff was phenomenal to watch last year in, in UW zone. Obviously he's not going to average six combined steals and blocks like he did as a senior. Um, but that wasn't all just because he played in the zone. The ball wasn't just landing in his lap. Like he just has special instincts and ability on that side of the floor. And so I think as the year progresses, you'll see him get more comfortable. And as is, like, I mean, they have their core in place for at least the next couple of years and, uh, even longer than that, if you kind of just look it through on B and Simmons, and so I think Thibault's a guy who will slot in as a very competent re- reserve rotation player, um, because he's just so special on on defense and plays with a high IQ. And if he can hit spot up threes at a at a decent rate, thirty six, thirty seven percent on pretty high volume um, relative to his minutes per game, then I think he's certainly worth uh, worth that twentieth pick. Uh, trade trade aside. Yeah, and the pick, not from this offseason, but the year before, was Zaire Smith. He was 16th overall, and in true Philadelphia fashion, missed all of last season, minus six games. Um, I know the team is fairly high on him, and he's another guy with this defensive upside and a decent three-point shot to him as well, although it's been on small samples. Uh, what are your projections for him? It To me, looking at the rotation, it seems like he could be the backup too. Yeah, um, wh- I think so that so the 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 kind of the minutes uh battle is really among James Ennis, Zaire Smith, and Matisse Thibel for kind of that two slash three position. Uh 
and has played pretty well, especially in the playoffs and earned Brett Brown's trust. So I imagine he will open the season getting the most of those minutes on the wing. Um, but I would not be surprised if a guy like Zaire, Zaire or Matisse uh, kind of usurped him as the year went on. But yeah, Zaire is a guy that the organization is super high on. Uh, you saw in summer league this year, people saw in summer league this year that they really want to expand his offensive arsenal. He's running pick and rolls. He was shooting threes off of screens, really getting the ball in his hands a lot, kind of getting him downhill, see what he can do as a playmaker. Um, so they remain super high on him just from kind of the people I've talked to in the organization. Um, really optimistic about him. And even last year when he played a little bit, he was he was really, really good on ball defensively. Like his ability to get over screens uh, is phenomenal for a player so young. Uh, can, I mean, his athleticism is like all the way back. I mean, he had that, that near-death experience last fall um, and has recovered from that. Uh, really, really smart player. Um, similar to Zy- or Matisse and that that high IQ type player, but he's three years younger, two years younger than Matisse. Um, and so I think they're really excited for what he can do. He's a great cutter, explosive cutter. So I imagine we'll see at least a few backdoor cuts and passes from, from Ben Simmons to Zaire for some sweet dunks. Um, but at the same time, like he's, he's basically in his rookie year and he, he struggled to a degree last year. He's not a very good offensive player at this stage, um, which is to be expected. So there'll be growing, be growing pains. Um, the big question mark kind of like Matisse is what type of shooter is he? Obviously he has tinkered with his form and kind of reworked it to see how he can maximize his ability as a shooter. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if he'll get a lot of minutes at the two early on, but I wouldn't be surprised if nine months from now or no, geez, nine, nine months from now, the season will be over uh, seven months from now or so we're talking about him as a, a mainstay in the rotation as a guy who the Sixers are really relying on in the playoffs to really bring good minutes off the bench and, be a smart off-ball player and really um, make plays defensively, whether it's on the ball or off the ball. Another big part of this offseason has been the signing of Al Horford, uh, four years, $109 million. You know, I wonder, you mentioned, you talked a lot about the Tobias Harris value and how, you know, five years, $180 million, it's a lot of money. Uh, this is also a lot of money for a guy that's much older. Obviously, incredible player obviously going to bring something you know very valuable on the front end of that contract but at already 33 years old do you have any concerns about the the numbers on this deal yeah i mean i think it's it's very fair to be concerned about a guy who's 33 um and took a step back last year and had some some knee issues uh, that's a completely warranted thing to be giving him like to worry about giving him 110 million dollars when he, the contract's going to end when he's 37 like that's that's old for a basketball player regardless of how far we've come and rest and recovery and all that scientific uh research in the past decade or so um so yeah i think it's totally fair to have some concerns um i would be shocked if he's worth 27 million dollars per year in his third or fourth year obviously the cap's gonna inflate um each year so 27 million dollars won't look as much won't be won't be as big a cap hold um, but at the same time, yeah, I, I think it's, it's certainly worth fretting about, but, but similar to the Tobias thing, like if he is a key piece of a title, they win in 2021 or a finals that make both if they make the finals this year or the next two years, um, then to a degree it's worth it. Um, because he gives them, he makes them a championship contender. And that's like, I, I keep saying like, that's, the, that's the goal of, of any sport. And so, um, while it's definitely an overpay, I think, uh, it is something that is a justified overpay if it takes them to the level they want to be, which is making the finals and being the 
the Kings of the East and, and winning a title ideally. Um, but I think hopefully you were able to kind of balance both he and Embiid's minutes. Um, you can, you have this luxury to now where, you know, the team kind of raise their level of expectation. Like we talked about earlier, I don't think a lot of people expected the Sixers to um, compete with the Raptors and in, in, uh, going to the playoffs last year. And obviously they didn't. So uh, you have the kind of luxury of, of being a team who manages and um, massages the roster and the, the minutes to make sure that they are ready when the, uh, when the most important games are, are happening. And so ideally you, you keep Horford's minutes down and it's low down and uh, he is making all the, the great plays that, and all the highly intelligent plays as a passer and defender and, and shooter uh, in May and, and hopefully June. Right. One of those guys that's not individual stats, all the intangibles and makes the players around him better. Um, Boston often staggered his minutes. It was him and Tatum that it seemed they pulled out early and then ran with the second unit. Um, it feels like Philadelphia could really benefit from doing that. Maybe not Horford specifically. Um, at the same time, I, I mean, Horford might be a good idea there. If you pulled him out, maybe move Harris to his more traditional role before and Scooter did Ennis, something like that. Uh, do you predict them staggering the starting lineup? And if so, do you have a prediction for what the first sub could be? Yeah, I mean, you have to stagger, right? I mean, they, they objected, not objectively, excuse me. Uh, I think most people agree they have a below average bench. They don't have anyone who's a spark plug that, like an Eric Gordon or a Lou Williams or even a Spencer Dinwiddie who comes in and really can kind of commandeer the offense and, and make plays for others and themselves. Um, obviously, Trey Burke has done that in spurts, um, but he's not at that level. And so I think you have to stagger it. And I've written about it earlier this summer. I think my preferred stagger would be. Um, they so usually what they've done in the past is Embiid comes out around the five or four minute mark of the first quarter, I want to say, um, from recollection. Uh, and then Simmons comes out like kind of the end of the first. Um, they've really kind of spaced and staggered their minutes specifically a lot. Um, but I think my preference would be you keep um, Simmons and Embiid together actually, and you you let Horford down, you put Horford down at the five, Horford or Harris the four, and then you keep Richardson out there. Um, because I think Horford is their second best playmaker behind Simmons. And so if you stagger them together, well, I think that two man game has a lot of awesome potential with Simmons driving ability and passing, um, and his, his finishing ability. Uh, and then Simmons just general IQ and, and, uh, floor spacing. Uh, you need someone to be able to make plays and Horford is that guy whether it's on the short roll or from the elbows or on handoffs. Um, and Richardson and Harris are just not that guys. And I, I don't think Burke or Nate or how will NATO are, or that, um, that guy either. And so, um, I really like the pairing of Horford and Harris. I think those guys will work really, really well together. Horford's a great screen setter, and Harris is someone who isn't a dynamic space creator on his own. And so, if you have him setting, if Horford's setting a bunch of screens for him in the pick and rolls or in handoffs, and letting him get open for to knock down those jumpers that he's so good at, um, pretty much pretty much everywhere on the floor, that's just going to make their offense better. Um, so that's kind of what I. That's my suggestion. I don't know if it'll happen again. I think kind of the cop-out answer is it'll be an experiment uh, for a while, but my suggestion would be to kind of stagger it that way and keep your two best players together on the floor as much as possible because as much hand-wringing as there is about their fit, and I get it, they're not maximized together um, because they're both best with the ball in their hands. Their numbers over the last two years uh, are really, really good together. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to go away from that. You're not trading either one of them, and so you might as well play them together because they just – kick teams butts when they're out there together and so I think it's worth keeping Embiid and, and Simmons together because they're they're really good players and really good players tend to uh 
do do good things together. Yep, you mentioned there's not a ton of you know yes star power, uh, one standout player on the bench, but some moves were made here for role players. Brought back Mike Scott, two years, ten million. Uh, James Ennis, two years, four million, and Corkmaz uh, as well, two years, three and a half. And uh, as you mentioned, how Neto is now on the team uh, on the veteran minimum and two, one year, two million for Trey Burke. What did you think about those sort of uh, secondary signings? I think for the most part, they did a very good job of filling out their bench. Um, a lot of people were, for a long time, um, Dwayne Dedman has been a, a future and he's a former Sixer dude, but he's been a future Sixer. He'd be Sixers fan. If you just wanted him for the longest time, obviously he went for a lot of money. He's now a King and, we talked about that earlier, but um, for the most part, I think getting a guy, getting guys like Hulu Nieto and Trey Burke and Kyle LoQuinn, um, guys who meet some needs, both both Burke and Nato can stretch the floor, and that's what you need around um, Simmons and Embiid. Uh, O'Quinn gives you a, a safety valve if one night Horford needs to rest or Embiid needs to rest. You can slot him in as a backup center, a starting center. No, he's going to be fine for 20, 24 minutes every now and then. Um, and so, for the most part, I liked I liked their signings. I think they did a good job of complementing the centerpieces of the roster and addressing some of the holes that were um, that were glaring last year, even as the year ended. Um, and so, it's 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 a very tough position to be in when you have so much financial burden not burden financial uh, finance, excuse me, tied up to three or four guys. I mean, they have they a lot over twenty five million. Uh, annually to four guys, not obviously Simmons still on rookie scale, but moving forward at some point, he is going to start playing with that max contract. I think after this season. Um, yeah. After this season, but yeah. And so I think it's tough to fill out a roster how when you're kind of capped financially to an extent. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't say they, they hit a home run, but I would say for the most part, they did very well um, given their limited options in terms of who they could fill out the bench with. Right, and with the staggering, they should be totally fine when that bench unit is out there with one of the starters. Um, you mentioned Ben Simmons getting that five-year 170 max. Uh, felt like a no-brainer to give that to him. He feels like the franchise player alongside with Joel Embiid. Um, okay, obviously there's these three-point videos going around. Um, you know, 17 attempts in his career and zero makes. I'm not as worried about that. To me, it's the free throw percentage. 56% year one, 60% year two. Do you think that that keeps improving? And is that where you're so focused on with this as well? Um, it's tough for me to say that like it's going to keep improving just because I think 56 to 60, like, I, yes, that's improvement. That's 4% improvement. But I think um, that's within a margin of error where it's not like, oh, like he took a 9% lead. Like he obviously got better. Like it's not a ton different, you know, like if he makes like, 15 fewer free throws over the course of 82 games or I guess he played 79 last year, excuse me. Um, it's not a huge, we're not really talking about any improvements from the free throw line. So um, yeah, I think the free throw is the the main thing. Um, last year, at least in preseason at, at points, you could really see he was conscious about trying to tuck that left elbow in. Um, but as the season progressed, he kind of was inconsistent with that. He went away from the elbow, started to flare back out. Um, so yeah, I, I wrote an extensive piece about how I just, I think given all the data we've seen so far from Simmons, uh, it's very unlikely he shoots um, unless he changes mechanics or um, just finds a way for his, like just to improve his results. And, um, and so, yeah, I think the free throw is a great indicator. And so far we've seen him be a very poor free throw shooter. Um, 
And so if that improves, if somehow it becomes a, a 70% free throw shooter this year, then, then yeah, I, I will start discussing and entertaining the thought of him potentially being a three point shooter on spot ups or um, at some point down the line. But for now, yeah, you got to start with the free throw percentage and I haven't seen any really, really inspirational improvement. Um, obviously, like I said, 4% is an improvement, but I think it's within that kind of unofficial margin of error to the point where you can be like, I don't necessarily know if it's anything mechanically he did different from year one to year two to improve that percentage. You know, it's interesting. This reminds me of the first podcast I think Brendan and I ever recorded. We debated whether or not the Kings should trade De'Aaron Fox for Ben Simmons if that hypothetical situation were out there. Uh, and discussing the value of each player, what they mean to their team, the fit, and all that. Uh, it's very complicated, and, and, you know, at the end, it's worthless to discuss because that, that trade's not uh, out there. But uh, it, it makes me wonder because, um, you know, Brendan, I, I think your thought process at the time was that Ben Simmons would eventually improve his shooting at least a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, and that's still possible. But, you know, from your perspective, Jackson, as a guy who – covers Ben Simmons, and then also has a fondness for Darren Fox. Is that a situation where you feel like, you know, neither, neither team wants that type of a trade, or is that, some, is that something where you feel like there is just one player is, is better? I, so I, I, I think Simmons right now is a, a noticeably better player. I wouldn't be shocked if a year from now I was not saying that, that, that Fox continues to get better. I think the, the improvements he made were, like, way bigger than the ones Simmons made last year. Obviously, he was coming from a lower, much lower starting point. Um, but even there, I think Simmons has a little bit of an edge. I, I would probably put, I think, Simmons in my top 30 players in the NBA, and Fox would be more in my top 45 to 50. Um, I, and it's not an indictment on Fox or anything. I just I, uh, I think Simmons is a superior player, and I don't think there's necessarily a trade that is worth it for either side. Um, I think Fox is a guy who's really embraced the city and the franchise, um, his personality, like I keep saying, like he's just super infectious. He's a guy you want to play with. Um, I don't think it's worth like I, I don't think the trade on the Kings end would be worth it for the Sixers, a team who have really embraced that large, long defensive identity. Um, and obviously, Fox is a, a very good defender in his own right, um, but he doesn't provide the same level of versatility um, as Simmons does. Be able to guard two, three, four positions. Um, I just don't think a trade is worth it, and I think the Sixers still have the superior player at this point. Um, but I, but I, like I said, I wouldn't be shocked if four or five, six months from now, I'm. It's a different discussion because Fox takes another leap forward in some some degree, and Simmons continues to only make kind of smaller fringe improvements that aren't necessarily as easy to discern or as impactful. The Kings Pulse podcast is recorded and hosted on Anchor. It is the easiest way to make a podcast, and it is 100% free. It gives you everything you need to record, edit all of it so it sounds smooth and professional, and upload it all from your phone and or your computer. They distribute your podcast to every major platform. They give you an opportunity to make some money in the process as well. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Right. And yeah, Rich, at the time, I thought you were a little bit crazy. Like you said, I think it was our first conversation and you're saying you'd take Fox over like all these other superstars in the league. And this was like having the team control contract and all that. And uh, yeah, right. I mean, as and I, I'll, I'll uh, just interject to say, it's not that I, I felt that 
Fox is the superior player, but you know, just as Jackson said, I, I and as you'll recall, like I, I do agree, and I agreed at the time that Simmons is better, but it's it's it comes down to the identity of the team, and so is that trade worth it from either side? I would say no. Right. Yeah. And and I on board with you now. And uh, you mentioned Fox taking that step forward. We like to identify guys on these various teams in the previews that we think will be able to take a step forward. Um, you mentioned Simmons maybe just taking small steps here and there. Is there any player that you identify as potentially taking a uh, bigger step forward? Um, I, I don't see anyone besides Simmons like realistically making a huge step forward. I think um, I think the guy that you would peg would be Zaire Smith of anyone, right? I mean, he's a lot of a lot of smart draft people had him as a top ten prospect two years ago, and. He went 16th, obviously that's not top 10, but that was a very, very good rookie class. I think in a lot of classes, Zaire would have been a top 10 pick. Um, and so you look at a guy who's kind of in his rookie year. He's been around the franchise now for uh, like eight months. I mean, he was just, he was in a hospital bed until like Thanksgiving. Um, and so or he gets 10 months now. And so he's kind of understanding what it's like to be a pro. He has a, another summer league under his belt. Um, he's back to being fully healthy. He's, very far removed from that, that uh, traumatic experience, traumatic health experience. Um, so, yeah, I, I would select uh, Zaire or, or Simmons to be the ones that make a leap. Um, I think you might maybe see some statistical on overall play improvements from guys like Tobias and Joff Richardson, but I honestly think, I think that might be more a product of environment rather than actual like internal growth, like a growth as a player. And as far as any regression candidates, you know, we discussed briefly Horford's age and you mentioned his knee issues as well. Uh, but that does feel like that is more likely to come into play towards the end of his contract. You know, it's hard to, to find and identify a player that's really expected to take a step down. I wonder if Jay Rich might struggle a little bit in terms of his numbers, not at his actual ability on the court, I don't think. I think that he'll thrive most likely in that defensive-minded setting. Uh, but, you know, in terms of his production, we might see a dip. Anyone else maybe going towards role players here that you think is going to lose some of their role or, or lose some of their uh, on-court ability? Um. I, I think I think we've talked about it a little earlier, but I, I do think James Ennis is a guy who would just find himself out of the rotation by January or something just because he's been outplayed by Thibault or, or Zaire or they've shortened the rotation um, to just not include eight or nine or ten guys or whatever. Um, so that would kind of be where, where I lean. Obviously, I think Ennis was very important for them off the bench, just giving them a guy who could fill minutes to the three and defend a little bit and uh, hit the occasional three-pointer. Obviously, I don't think his efficiency from deep was very good. Um, but I think he is a guy whose rotation spot um, is kind of the most in question. I think maybe Mike Scott's another guy who you could worry about. Like, if Mike Scott's not hitting more than 38% of his threes, he's probably not returning positive value for you. Um, and as, as well as Mike Scott shot the last few years from three, like, it's just tough sometimes to, like, you sometimes you have a down year from three, and that – you saw it with a guy like Devin Booker last year who had been on an upward trajectory and all of a sudden shot 32%. Um, obviously very different players, but the point is that sometimes you just have weird variants as a shooter. Um, and Scott's value is so heavily reliant on that ability to hit threes in the efficient clip that if it doesn't happen, then you just don't know, you just don't actually know like what he's giving you on the floor um, besides some good tough nose rebounding. Um, 
so those would be my 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 candidates. But I but I expect Scott to be a very good shooter again, and I expect Ennis to at least early on to hold down uh, consistent minutes off the bench. Um, and I think I I think if Ennis loses his job, it'll be far more a testament to the improvements or the play of Thibel or Zaire than it is uh, Ennis just playing very poorly. Right, which would be a good thing overall for the team long term. And uh, we've identi- identified the defensive potential and capabilities of this team as a major strength. Is there any quieter ones that uh, that you know, and what would you view as the weaknesses for this team? I would say just to identify the weaknesses, I think it's going to be perim- perimeter creation. Like they just don't have a guy like Jimmy Butler who can go get you a bucket when, when you need it or create a bucket, whether it's drawing a foul or driving a kick in and, or just scoring himself. Um, so I would say that's their biggest issue offensively. Um, I would say they have a really, really good chance to be like kind of a, a dominant interior scoring team um, along with like a dominant rebounding team and creating second chances on the glass. Um, obviously Simmons is a very rebounder for his size and beads improved as a rebounder over the last, over the course of his career. Horford's not great, um, but Harris is pretty good for his size as well. Um, and so I, I think that would be the type of thing where you're looking at where they're just they're just destroying teams on the inside, whether it's Embiid post-ups, um, Simmons finishing at the rim, um, creating a lot of chances via screens to get guys like Harris or Richardson going downhill because they just have a bunch of like gigantic humans. And if you can set screens with bigger players, then it, it's harder for the other guys to fight around those screens. So that's where I think kind of their advantage lies and is hopefully leaning into that size advantage and creating a lot of switches and running a lot of screen-based uh, offensive sets because that's that's kind of their identity on offense. You know, their, often, their, you know, their defensive identity is just going to be switch a lot of things and um, control the paint and the glass. But I think kind of similarly, you have to really lean into that size um, on offense because you aren't a great shooting starting lineup and you don't have a lot of great perimeter ball handlers in the starting lineup either. So you really just kind of really got to make, make the most of the size you have and all the good screen centers and, and big bodies you have. Because you've mentioned the starting lineup and closing lineups and uh, rotations and, and the staggering, I'm going to jump. We normally you know discuss all that stuff, but I feel like you've answered it pretty well already. So let's just jump to the over-under. Uh, this team is pegged right around 54 wins, a little bit higher or lower depending on what site you're looking at. And that's good for... Uh, second or third in that range, they're right there with the Clippers. Uh, the Bucks are leading the way, around 58 wins. But, uh, yeah, this over-under, it's high, but it doesn't seem unreasonable. What are you what's – your, what's your thought on this line? Are you going over or under here? Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's high, but it, it's a very good team. And so very good teams have high over-under win totals. Um, it's it's really tough. I I, I want to say over and uh, Brett Brown had like a luncheon yesterday and was very explicit saying he wants to get the number, number one seed. And so I would say more than 54, it's going to take more than 54 wins to get the number one seed. But at the same time, I know the organization really wants to be careful with Embiid's health. And I think it's like, it's just tough to say you want the number one seed and protect Embiid because like you just can't do both. Like it's just not possible. Like, and beat is so important what they want to do that you're going to have to rest him if you really value his long-term health and you don't want him to be in and out of the lineup like he was uh, in the second half of the regular season last year and struggling with some issues in the playoffs. So um, I will take the under by just a little bit. Um, I would say 53 wins kind of feels right for them. Um, 
But I think at, I think at their ceiling, if they didn't have to worry about Embiid, they could win 56, 57 games, uh, maybe even approach 60. But I think they're going to be really cautious um, with Embiid, even Horford to a degree. And I think overall they're just going to make sure their guys are ready for the postseason. Um, I wouldn't even be surprised to see Harris get some some rest some rest days. He played 82 games last year, I think, and he's always playing a bunch of minutes. And I mean, he was just he just struggled in the playoffs last year, and so I think. I don't know if that was fatigue or just never really got his, his feet under him in, in Philadelphia. Um, but I think they will make sure that their, their best five, six, seven guys are ready to roll when the, the games are most important. And that is going to require them to not play five starters, 400 games combined. So I'll take the, the under, but just barely, even if I think they at their peak are better than a 54 win team. Yeah, Brett Brown mentioning being the first seed obviously makes sense. You know, if you were home court advantage in that Toronto series, things could have gone drastically different. And who knows if Philadelphia was the one to face off against the depleted Golden State squad, who the defending champions would be right now. Um, James Ennis said over the offseason that the team would, quote, walk to the finals. Is is it that simple? Uh, I, I do think that Milwaukee and Toronto are the clear top tier, but do you feel like they'll be able to walk over everyone else? And how do you feel about your chances when you do, if you do, reach Milwaukee? <laughs> uh, now, yeah, the, the funny thing about that is, and so he, I so I went to summer league this year, and I it was he said that like that quote was tweeted out like midway through a game, like he was sitting on the sidelines, and like he was at summer league. The Keith Pompey was the beat reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, like saw him and talked to him for a few minutes and then all of a sudden get a notification on my phone that he had said that and I'm, I'm like looking at James and it's right there and so that was just just funny to me but um no I don't think they're gonna walk to the finals like Milwaukee's a really really good team I think Milwaukee deserves to um be the favorites in the east right now they deserve to be projected to win the most games um but I think the Sixers have a very good chance to knock them off they um they are a very good defensive oriented team and that's what you need against a Giannis Led squad. You saw it last year with the Raptors. The Raptors were uh, just phenomenal against Giannis. I, I wrote a piece about if the Sixers are well equipped, well equipped to stop Giannis. And so I rewatched the Eastern Conference Finals and just uh, the discipline and the rotations and the individual the defense on Giannis was just phenomenal to, to see again um, a few months later. And so I think when they get there, I, I, I don't think I would pick them to beat the, the Bucks, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. And I, I think it would go at least six or seven games. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think they have a great chance to make the finals. Um, obviously great is a very relative term in the NBA. That means 15% or something like that. 20%, um, uh, sorry, not to make the finals, to win the finals. Um, but it's better than, better than 20% to make, <laughs> to make the, make the finals. Um, when I think that's all you can really ask for is to be one of the, like they're uh, barring something going wrong and be it injury or Horford or Simmons or something going down, they're going to be clearly the one or the one or two seed. They're just going to be, they're better than everyone else. And um, aside from Milwaukee. And so I think they have a very good chance to make the finals and that's like really asked for and um, to build a championship squad. I mean, I think a lot of people will, you know, I, I don't want to get too, too soapboxy, but I think a lot of people will point to the process and say, well, they have to win a title to kind of make it a success. And while that may be, may be true. Like, you know, like, it's just also like, it's t- really t- hard to win a championship. And so if they're able to be a team that is completely, consistently fighting for a finals berth or a championship. Like that's, that's all you can ask. And so I think that's what they're going to be the next year. And um, I wouldn't pick them to beat the Bucks right now, but I think they have much better chance than anyone else in the East. And so that's a pretty good spot to be in relatively speaking. 
Yeah, for my two cents, I will throw out there that they are my choice to come out of the East. I just I feel like Milwaukee will dominate the regular season, and it wouldn't shock me if those lines were correct, where you know Milwaukee gets the one seed by a comfortable four or five games. But I just you know this we've talked about the length, but the length it just I, it feels to me like it's built for the playoffs, and a lot of it is going to be contingent on Embiid's health and conditioning. So. You know, I could certainly be wrong about that, but uh, that's just my two cents. And then, uh, I, you know, I want to also ask you about your thoughts on this team looking forward down the line, you know, with a team that is this stacked in the moment, it may seem foolish to to look too far into the future, but, you know, three to five years down the line here, uh, I want to know what you're thinking about where this team's going to be, because... You know, that, that might be where those contracts that we've talked about, the Harris contract, the Horford contract, if there is negative value on those, it's probably when it's going to take hold. Uh, Simmons obviously will be getting his payday by then. You know, what do you think about this team in the, in the long view here? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it's going to come down to, uh, to Simmons. Like, is he a guy that kind of stagnates to a top 25 player, which is still a consistent all-star and uh, vying for all NBA teams, or is he going to be a guy who makes that leap into top 12, top 15 type impact? Um, and while that's not a huge climb when the just actual ladder, it's like a, like in, from 25 to 15, like the, the jump in impact there is, a, is pretty big. Um, and so I think a lot of it can come to him. What type of players is Harris going to establish himself as? Um, is another key, key question. Um, and then not, not to be, not to be overshadows is what, is Embiid still a dominant, dominant player? Does like does he erase his health concerns? Are they able to properly manage his workload and alleviate the knee issues? Is does he take a little bit of weight off and so it's not such so much pounding and wear and tear on the knees every time he rumbles down the floor or you know attacks the basket? Um, and so I think those are the three defining questions. I think obviously Horford's going to keep declining. Like it just happened. Like he's past his physical and his uh, his just skill development peak, and so. Um, I I don't think he's going to be a guy you can really expect to continue to be a top 25, top 30 player in three years. Um, and then the two wild cards, or the spe- specifically the Zaire, like what type of players does he develop into? Um, is Does Matisse Thiel become a starting level wing um, down the line? But I, I really do think it comes down to Simmons and to a, a slightly lesser degree is Embiid's health. Um, because I think we've seen at, at Embiid's peak, he's a guy whose impact is that as a top three or four player, obviously his health has kind of prevented him from being mentioned among the top three or four players, but from a game to game basis, he, he has shown to be that type of player and the, the stats or the impact metrics backed up as well. And so um, you really need those two to continue to being continue being who they are. And you hope that you expect Simmons to make a leap in from stardom to superstardom in the, the near future. Yeah, those are definitely two great players to have the uh, beholden the future of your franchise. But uh, that's all we have for you for Philadelphia, Jackson. We want to give you a chance at the end here to plug anything and everything that you got going on. Uh, yeah, so I will primarily be doing uh, my Sixers coverage. Uh, my long-form analysis stuff will be at Liberty Ballers. We'll have some some kind of rapid reaction stuff every game at, at the Athletic, my kind of report card stuff where I grade uh, – individual players' performance after every game. Uh, and then you can find uh, general NBA content uh, at Fan Size of Step Back. Um, I'm really going to be hitting hard NBA draft stuff this year. 
Um, I'll have a piece on uh, Denny Avdia coming out tomorrow, a little scouting report on him. Um, and so if you follow me, just check that out. I'll definitely tweet out and be obnoxious about retweeting it throughout the day. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll be really hitting Sixers coverage hard this year once the season starts up. Um, been pre- pretty laid back with it this, this summer, but um, really excited to get back into it and write about the team and talk more about the team once once the season starts up because it's been been too long. I mean, we're gone, my goodness, four and a half, five months now. So, um, yeah, Liberty Ballers, fans of the step back, and the Athletic Philadelphia is where you can find all my work this year. And thank you to everybody for listening to this episode of the King's Pulse podcast. You will hear from us again in the next couple of days.